This idea of how can I be thankful when bad things are happening is probably one of the most challenging questions, I think, that we can ask ourselves because it does encompass the entirety of a person. It, it encompasses your emotions, your physicality, your mental reasoning. It en- entails our family and our friends and people that are around us. Traditionally, the faith community has often failed at addressing this question. It's failed either because it responds by simply saying, you just need to trust God while ignoring the real pain and the suffering of people, or else it responds by not answering at all and just avoiding the subject. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a uh, a German theologian who ended up becoming a martyr for the faith in uh, Germany under Hitler, in a book that was compiled called Letters and Papers from Prison, said this. Uh, I, mean, I want you to catch this. This is such a powerful quote. We must learn to regard people less in the light of what they do or omit to do and more in the light of what they suffer. Wow. We must learn to regard people less in the light of what they do or omit to do and more in the light of what they suffer. Now, this was a man who suffered greatly under Hitler's regime and, and uh, stood up for the faith and, and ended up dying for the faith. As I, as I read that, that quote this week, I thought about the fact that we so often tend to maybe place ourselves in God's position instead of allowing God to place us in our position. Our position is not to spend so much time focused on what people are doing or are not doing. Uh, God's going to deal with that. God's going to judge with some of that. We make, we make decisions. We see a lot of things, Romans chapter 1 and, and uh, I think 1 Corinthians 5 and some other places where, where we see some direction about the church and how we're supposed to evaluate um, people that say they are of the faith but yet live lives that are totally contradictory to God's plan. Yeah, I, I, I see all that stuff and understand that. That's not in contradiction to even to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer is, is trying to convey. It's the idea that we move away from trying to do the checklist in people's lives to understanding what is happening to people, what people have gone through, what people are experiencing. Why did someone reach the point that they are today? That, that's one of the things that, that we've tended in the faith community to shy away from because what it does is it forces us to get engaged in someone's life. We've got to be willing to understand things that have happened in childhood. We've got to be able to recognize and, and engage with people who have experienced difficult marriages or people who have experienced um, um, physical issues and whether that's sickness or, or uh, limitations or other things. And that takes time from us and that takes effort from us. And, and if we just want to really be honest, even though we all have these phones, which I've told you before, your average smartphone today is more powerful than the computers that were used to put man on the moon. 
Actually has more computing power, more strength, all that in what you carry around in your pocket. Even though we have all of these things, we have cars that get us places faster, we have fast food that we can drive through and get something in moments, and we're usually very frustrated if that takes four or five minutes versus two or three minutes. All of these things that were supposed to speed things up, we have movies on demand. We have Netflix and Hulu and, and, and TiVo and this and that and all of these things that we can just do it now, save it for later. We don't have to be anywhere even at a certain time because we can save it, watch it later. We can do all of these things. But it's ironic that yet we seem to be engaged with people and with our communities and with our neighbors even less than we've ever been before in our society. And so it's easy for us to just kind of find a superficial list of things that, well, this person's doing this or they're not doing this or I see somebody on television and they're doing this or they're not doing this and that's what we focus on instead of being able to see people more in the light of what they suffer. I've found personally that the further that one finds themselves from suffering in their personal lives, the greater their capacity for disregarding the suffering of others. Yet the nearer one is to personal suffering, the greater their capacity for compassion and encouragement of others. I mean, think about it, guys. If you've been going through something difficult in your life, it kind of breaks you. It kind of humbles you. It makes you more sensitive to other people going through a similar experience. Anybody ever bought a car? Yep, you bought a car, right? Did you ever notice that after you bought a vehicle, you started seeing that model vehicle everywhere you looked? And you didn't remember them being there before, right? You bought and you got you that blue one or that red one, or maybe you got the yellow one or whatever you got. Don't get orange, and particularly if not orange with some blue on it. I'm just going to say that right now. That thing will probably tear up. And, you know, it'll break down, you know, late in, in the trip. I'm just saying, oh, I'm sorry, you know, for what? Were y'all thinking I was talking football or something? Could have been the Denver Broncos for all y'all know. See, and y'all all thought I was talking about Auburn. You're just guilty consciences. Um, so you got that thing, and all of a sudden you started noticing cars of that color. You started noticing that model. And you, didn't, and you thought, hey, I haven't seen these around town. And all of a sudden, you see it everywhere you turn. See, that's, that's a very natural thing for us. It's part of our human nature. We become aware. Our awareness is heightened. And so all of a sudden, we start noticing things that we didn't notice before. See, when we go through suffering, all of a sudden, we start noticing things that we didn't notice before. And prior to going through that, we might have had an issue with that person because of particular things that they do or they don't do or things they like or they don't like or their age or their background or their ethnicity or their socioeconomic level. All of these things that would separate us. But yet when you hear about like an AA meeting, nobody comes in necessarily and, and goes, wow, you're poor, I can't be here with you because I'm middle class. And the rich guy doesn't really go, I can't be here with you guys because it's just people that have a common thing. And so they come together because they're just looking to support. 
And they're looking to encourage. And, and see, that's what suffering tends to do to us, quite honestly. Is it causes us to lose some of the issues that divide and separate. And then all of a sudden we move past all these other things. And we just recognize another hurting person. And we realize that we're hurting and we just want to encourage each other. We just want to cry with each other. We just want to experience the moment with each other. Because we, we all of a sudden tear down all those other walls and become vulnerable. Today I want us to look at the reality of suffering and gratefulness. And I want us to see three things. Number one, why does suffering exist? And honestly, I really don't have enough time to do this topic justice. That, that topic alone could be enough to probably do a couple of sermons on. But, but we're going to at least kind of hit the high points on why does suffering exist. Number two, we're going to look at the fact suffering hurts. Suffering hurts. We're going to look at number three, God provides hope, especially in suffering. So the first one, why does suffering exist? Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, this is what it says. And he, being God, said to Adam, Because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. I want you to catch something in this. God said, the ground is cursed because of you. He didn't say the ground is cursed because I want to punish you. He didn't say the ground is cursed because I'm going to prove a point to you. He says the ground is cursed because of you, because of your choice, because of what you have decided in this moment, because you listen to someone else. And too many people get hung up about uh, who, who did what, and, and people say, oh, you know, it's Eve's fault. Now, by the way, it's not Eve's fault. It's Adam's fault because Adam was supposed to be the spiritual leader, and God says it is because of you and your disobedience that you listened to someone else and you didn't spiritually lead and ensure that, that you followed after what I had commanded you because we never see in Genesis that God ever commanded Eve. He commanded Adam and said, this is what you're, this is what you're supposed to do. And, and so he abdicated his position of leadership and he gave in and did something that God had told him not to do. And, and God says, it is your fault. We see that later even in the New Testament where the Bible talks about that even though the sin entered the world through one man, it was Adam, by his transgression, and therefore that death entered in. But then Adam became that, uh, that type and shadow of Christ because it says then, but by one man's obedience and his sacrifice being Christ then that... that, that, that Life came in and forgiveness comes in and redemption, all the things that come in because of Christ. So we see this idea that it was Adam's choice that actually brought sin into the world and we see that reinforced in the New Testament. When God created mankind, he gave mankind a choice contained in free will. Gave him an opportunity to decide. And God's desire was for mankind to choose to love God. To honor him, to give him adoration and loyalty, but forced love is no love at all. 
But God also wanted to lavish the entirety of His love on us. I think one of the things that we've mistakenly at times gotten focused on is that, well, God created us and He wanted us to love Him. But God also created us because He wanted to pour out His love on us. He didn't just want to, well, I want to create something that will worship me. He created something and He wanted to demonstrate all of His goodness to that creation. He wanted to demonstrate all of His blessing to that creation. Demonstrate all of His love to that creation. Not just to say, well, I want to create something to love me. If that would have been what He entirely wanted to do, then He could have just made us have no choice, but then would that really be love? I thought about the Columbine massacre that happened. The young lady, there were songs written about her and Man, such powerful stuff. When, when that young man came alongside with a gun, she knew that, that her life was on the line, and he asked her about whether she was a Christian. And all this. She had a, See, that's, that's when in the moment, if you don't truly love God, if you don't truly have a relationship with God, that's the moment when you say, well, you know what, I'll make it up to God later. I want to live right now. No, 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 I don't, I don't love God. See, you could take a gun and put it in somebody's head and force them to say they loved you, and that's not really love at all. But what about when someone puts the gun to their head and says, do you love him? And they say, yes, I do. C.S. Lewis, who if you've not read any of, if you've been through anything difficult in your life, an illness, a death, a loss, if you've not read some of C.S. Lewis's stuff, uh, A Grief Observed, um, a book called The Problem of Pain. He was a tremendous um, thinker, Christian thinker. And, and he's just very, uh, so his, his stuff's tough to read, all right? I'll be honest with you. Because you've got to read about three or four pages and think about it for the rest of the day. And sometimes you've got to read three or four pages three or four times because it is so deep sometimes. But I want to share with you a quote from his book, The Problem of Pain. The problem of reconciling human suffering with the existence of a God who loves is only insoluble so long as we attach a trivial meaning to the word love and look on things as if man were the center of them. Man is not the center. God does not exist for the sake of man. Man does not exist for his own sake. Thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created, the word says. We were made not primarily that we may love God, though we were made for that too, but that God may love us, that we may become objects in which the divine love may rest well pleased. Here's a powerful thing about God. When God created us, created mankind, put this, this world into existence, His desire was to be well pleased in us. His desire was for us to pursue after Him and then for Him to empower us in that pursuit. He wanted us to freely love Him, but He wanted to be able to freely love us and to pour out of everything that He had on us. And He so desired that He, that he was willing to do what was necessary to allow us to be able to do that. 
which we couldn't do in ourselves, so He would empower us. And then when we made the wrong choice, He would pay the penalty for the wrong choice that we made simply so that He could love us. John 3.16, we know it. For God so loved the world that He gave. God wants to shape us in such a way that every blessing that He can bestow on us is available to us. I wonder sometimes if we truly recognize what could be available to us as followers of Christ. It's kind of like if, if you guys knew that I had $10 million. Praise God for the thought. But, but if you knew I had $10 million and I said, I want to adopt people. <laughs> I want to adopt people and I will give you access everything that I have I just want to shape your life a little bit and in the shaping of your life and the parameters that you see that I, that I define for that I want to help you become the best person you can possibly be I want you to be the, the best leader you can possibly be, the best father, the best mother, the best son, daughter, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, cousin, nephew, niece, whatever it is. I want you to be the best you that you could ever be. I want you to be the most compassionate. I want you to be the most loving. I will help you to become those things. And as you accomplish those things, that will open you up to Different areas of the fullness of everything that I have available. And then you said, Nah, I'll pass on that. Or, you know, okay, adopt me just enough to make sure that I'm going to have enough food to eat and, and you're going to make sure I got a car and all that. But I don't want to, you know, I don't want to really have to do what's necessary to experience the fullness of everything you, you have. Just as long as I got enough. If we had no choice but to follow God, to obey God and love Him, how would that in any way bring glory to God? Along those lines, how would virtuous characteristics ever come to pass in us? How would that happen in mankind without opposition? Now, we don't like to think about these things, but how would patience develop without adversity? If everybody was nice to you, how would selfless love ever be displayed? Being honest wouldn't be a virtue if it were impossible to steal or lie. All of the things that people even outside the faith community value, what are the things that people value in folks? They value honesty, right? They, invalue, they value integrity. They value uh, being a hero. How do we define someone being a hero? What, what's, what's some examples of things and in, in, in ways that you see that we would say, oh, that's a hero? What, what are some of the characteristics of people that are heroes? Don't everybody yell at once. You, I can't, can't hear through the, the din of noise. Compassion. Compassion bravery. bravery selflessness. Courageous. What are we? We think about, we think about, we celebrate people like when 9 11 happened. We celebrate firemen that would run into a building. 
that they knew was probably going to collapse and they would go in and they would get people and they would bring them out and their seed and the buildings just weakening, the structure is going to, and they go back in again. We talk about people in the military that are trying to rescue folks and we say they run to the fire, to the sound of the battle instead of running away from it. For a parent who is willing to do something that endangers their life, maybe ends their life in order to try to protect their child. Why is it we value all of these things that seem to often be tied to adversity? We, when we were kids, we would, you know, you would, you, you might would watch, uh, you know, the westerns or something like that. And what was it? It was always the guy with the six gun who was defending the ranch against the robbers or against, you know, the outlaws, against the corrupt sheriff or whatever it was, you know. Why we, all, we celebrated that stuff. Someone who makes a stand alone in battle. Movies are made about them, even if they end up losing their life. We give people awards after their death because of their bravery, because of their courage, because of all these things. Why? Because we in our minds, forget even Christianity, we as people, we recognize that there is something that comes out of adversity that we admire, that we value. Now we don't like that when we turn around and think about that we see opposition and hardship as something that brings the best out in us oftentimes. We like that when it's a movie. We like that when it's reading a book about someone else. We like that when it's something outside of us. We don't like it when it is us, right? None of us do. I mean, come on. Consider this. Did, did you know that, because we're still talking about why does suffering exist? And recognizing that mankind's choice in pushing God away created this. But consider this. Did you know that our world actually generates enough food for every person in the world to have at least 3,000 calories a day? For at least every person... In the world, not in the United States, in the world. And oh, by the way, right now we pay farmers subsidies to not grow food on their land. There's food that goes to waste. And when I was a kid, my mom was like, you're going to clean your plate. I still probably have a struggle with that today, you know, and, and I, I don't want to... You know, if I'm, if I'm out with our family, it almost drives me nuts if, you know, if somebody in our family, you know, looks and, and orders something, I, I would ride the kids about it a lot. I'd be like, look, you've been eating all this stuff. Don't order all that because you're not going to eat it. You're going to eat like a piece of that and then you're going to take it home and it's going to sit in the refrigerator for three days and then it's going to get thrown out. Don't waste that. Because my mom's like, you're going to eat that food. You're not leaving the table till you clean that plate. So, you know, if you was having something you didn't really like, you was going to please give me a small portion. <laughs> you was going to eat it. Did you know, in 2012, the world's rate of global food production had outpaced the global population growth rate. 
So our food production was growing faster than what the population growth was. And in that same time period, we were already producing one and a half times enough food to feed the entire world. This is 2012. Technology's better now, five years later. We were already growing our ability to produce food faster than what the population was, and we were already producing one and a half times the amount of food that was necessary to feed the entire world. But poverty and inequality prevents people from obtaining food. Stephen and I, when we went to Uganda, saw people that had nothing, no kind of food, and honey money to get it. But yet the world is throwing away. There are restaurants today that at the end of the day will throw food away simply because it didn't get bought. And, and many, many charities will go in and try to get them to give them that, that food. But then even our laws and many of our things that are in place sometimes even prevent the ability to be able to get that and just distribute it to people. And let them eat it. Somebody might get sick and turn around and sue, want $2 million. And that's, but this is where we're... So, so does suffering exist? Because God just doesn't feed everybody in the world? Or does suffering, when it comes to something like starvation, exist because mankind withholds or mankind oppresses or mankind manipulates in order to be in control? There are countries where the United States sends aid into it and we've stopped doing it because the government takes it and disperses it to the rich and doesn't provide it. Even though we're sending it from the United States to be given to the poor, it doesn't make it to the poor. They take it and they sell it and they do things with it in order to enrich themselves. See, some suffering exists in our world not because that God doesn't do something, but because that God has entrusted mankind to do things and to represent Him and we don't. When God created the world, we saw in Genesis, He said it was good. It was mankind who chose to shove God away and choose His own more difficult path. Man's choice did two things that created suffering. Man's choice introduced both moral evil and natural evil into creation. See, because once that man decided that he would not go according to God's plan, then we started making moral choices. And those moral choices sometimes that we make are contrary to God's plan. We choose to do things out of greed. We choose to do things out of selfishness. We choose to do things that benefit us. We have sayings like me and my four and no more. We have things where we say things like it's a dog-eat-dog world. You've got to look out for number one. If you don't look out for yourself, nobody else will. That should never be named among the body of Christ. Never. It shouldn't be you need to look out for Unity Point because the folks down the street aren't going to look out for Unity Point. We should all be looking out for God's family. We should all be looking out for God's kingdom. And God is desirous of His kingdom being expanded by reaching those that don't know Him because He came to seek and save the lost. Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verses 20 through 23 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, 
but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. And not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the firstfruits, we also groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So when God created the world, it wasn't subject to, to death. It wasn't subject. I've, I've told you guys this before. I think it's such a critical part of the message that I never really heard put this way growing up my whole life, even growing up in church. Didn't really hear the message this way. That the redemption story that we see at, even through Revelation and all that of the redemption of the entire world is a restoration back to the original creation. It's restoring everything back. So when we read about that the lion will lie down with the lamb and all these things, that is what was originally there. Death and decay and corruption, thorns, thistles, all of that stuff did not occur until man chose to push God away. God's plan was for us to be in a world that, that cooperated with us, that we simply tended and enjoyed the pleasure of and enjoyed His pleasure as He came down and walked with us on a daily basis. That was His whole plan. And His Design is, I'm going to restore that. And that's what leads us all through the process of Jesus coming so that we could have a restored relationship back to Him and that one day, that God, when He sends Jesus back to, to, to catch His people away, that He will restore all of creation. That's what Romans 8 is talking about here. That all of creation will be set free from the bondage of corruption. And that all of creation has been groaning together. Do we even realize that the world, the animal kingdom, all of the things around us, there is an innate and built-in understanding that this is not right. That's what he's saying here, that all of creation groans. It knows this is not what our Creator intended. And we want it to be what it was supposed to be. And he says, even we ourselves who have his spirit in us, even we grown waiting, saying, redeem our bodies. I'm, man, I got up this morning. I was doing some plumbing last night. And I got up this morning and I told Michelle, actually most of the day yesterday, I told Michelle, I said, I feel like somebody beat me with a stick. You know, I mean, I was under the house and I was, thank goodness you can stand up under the house. But, but I mean, man, it was just, I was going back and forth and my knees weren't, because I had to get down on my knees, that, that left knee, it says, hello, it talks. And, and I was having to be careful. But, I, man, I was sore when I got up this morning. I thought about that. Man, one day this is not going to be an issue. And I'm not, and I'm not even complaining because those folks that's got all kind of, you know, they've got bad arthritis and, and even children that, you know, have juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and stuff like that. And, but, but all of those things that we think of, one day they're not going to be here. One day we're going to be in God's presence and everything will have been redeemed, and there will be no more pain, and no more sorrow, no more hurting, no more tears, no more separation. All of those things will be done away with, because that was his original plan and his original creation, and that is what he is restoring back to where we can fully, totally, and completely experience his love and what he desired to be. Suffering exists not because that God has chosen to sit up there and say, I'm going to punish all you people, but because God gave us a choice. And we chose wrong. 
And then he didn't just go, well, you know what? All of y'all are going to go to hell now. He said, I'm going to provide a way. Because even though you made a wrong choice, I want to help you get back from your wrong choice. Because I want to love you. In the fullness of what I do, I've so loved the world that I sent, but I want to be able to love you with the fullness of all of my love. I want to have that relationship with you. And so I will make the way for you to even come back from your bad decision. I will let you take the makeup test and I'll give you the answers. That's really what it was. That's why suffering exists. And when we look at things like starvation and realize that we could actually be doing it. I read a, I read a, uh, a, a little article about this earlier this, this week. And it said, it said, if you will look at your hand, you will realize that you can either with that hand take a gun and destroy your neighbor or take food and feed them. Are we asking God to do what He has empowered us to do? Are we asking God to become the answer when He says, I have already provided the answer? It's you. But we're worried about laying up treasures in this world. Because look how hard I've worked. I deserve all of these things. This other person, they don't deserve that. Let them work like I've worked. Who gave you the ability? Who gave you the strength? Who gave you the breath in your body? Who gave you the mind to be... Ah. Why does suffering exist? Suffering exists because of man. The second one, and this, this one's actually a lot quicker. Suffering hurts. This doesn't require a lot of extensive explanation, but it does require our willing acceptance in the faith community that suffering hurts. Human nature tends to be willing to accept the initial pain that people experience, but then grow less tolerant of the ongoing pain over time. We, we see that someone goes through something difficult, and in the moment, we may cry, we may tear up with them, we have, we have sympathy for the situation, but, but two months later, we've got to just move on. That's the way we approach things. That's our, that's our human nature. And if we're not careful, that, that invades the faith community. Well, hey, it's been a year. It's been five years. It's been ten years. I mean, you just got to move on with your life. Look, people have moved on with their life, but scars exist. The faith community must come to grips with the fact that some suffering will endure until the time that we're redeemed from this life, whether through our passing or through the return of Christ. Yes, God will help the wound heal, but the scar still remains. That's why I believe that, that, that we see in Romans where it says that even those of us who have received His Spirit, that, that we still groan within ourselves waiting for the redemption of our bodies when the, when the, the scars will be gone. Does God heal? Does God... Yes. But God doesn't make us forget. God doesn't choose to make us where that we don't still experience the pain of separation or the pain of loss or the physical pain that can occur. You can't forget that you get a leg amputated. 
You can't forget that someone loses an arm from an IED because they're over in another country trying to defend those who can't defend themselves. God will help heal the, the mental the momentary mental expression that is so sharp in that instance, but it doesn't change the reality. And the faith community has got to embrace this and recognize that we can't tell people, you know, oh, you need to get over it, you need to move on, you need to just accept it. Look, they're accepting it. They're living with it. And yes, they don't need to become incapacitated by these things because that is not what God wants to have happen. But that is why that we long with anticipation for heaven. That is why we long for being able to pass from this life into that eternal life where that there is no pain and there is no hurt and there because suffering hurts. And the third and the final thing is that God does provide hope, especially in suffering. Psalms 34, verses 18 and 19, the Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. Many adversities come to the one who is righteous, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Mm. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. Many adversities come to the one who is righteous, but the Lord delivers him from them all. One of the things I've come to realize is that we as humans, we tend to look at everything in our lives in the right now. We reduce the timeline by which we evaluate both suffering and pleasure. We just, right here in this moment. It's almost as if our pain can cause us to kind of lose sight of the eternal nature of our relationship with God. And, and, and it happens to all of us. It just happens to all of us. Let's not pretend like it's weak people that get hung up in the moment or whatever. This happens to us. Let, let the pain be strong enough and, and I promise you'll struggle with being in the right here and right now because that's what's happening is the right here and right now. But yet, we are challenged to step back and to think about the fact that we are eternal. There's scripture that reminds us of this. Psalm 39 and 5 tells us that our lifespan is, is as nothing in His sight and man is but a vapor. Second Corinthians 4 and 17 reminds us that our affliction is both light and momentary, but is working an incomparable eternal weight of glory in us. Now, understand that these passages are not denying the reality of suffering. They're not denying pain. They're not saying, oh, just what you're going through, that's just, that's not all that, that's not a big deal. That's not what he's saying. But he is stepping back from the picture and he's saying in the understanding of that you are an eternal being, this moment in the light of eternity, as difficult as it is, is but a moment. And it is painful and it hurts. 
But God, this is God speaking. This is not Nathan. This is not some psychologist. This is not someone. This is God speaking, the one who can heal. And the one who has promised us that when we pass from this life, or if he comes back before we pass from this life, that he is going to heal. It is God who is speaking who is saying this is but light and it is but for a moment. But tell a, tell a kid when you're getting a shot, a needle stuck in you, and tell them that's just momentary pain, but this, you're going to end up better in the end. So then fast forward to us as followers of Christ. And the difficult things that happen in our life. And try to convince us. Right? Try to convince us that the difficult thing that we're going through is but for a moment. It's hard. It's hard for us to comprehend. So how is it? How is it that we're going to be able to be grateful even during this time of suffering, because we just say, oh, I understand that the Scripture says that, that, that God is going to be near to those that are brokenhearted and all of that. Three quick things. Number one, remember what God has done for us and what His actions have prepared for us in the future. Because in the moment of what's happening, we have to be able, even while we're experiencing the, the very real and even almost debilitating pain of the moment, we do have to be able to step back and go, I'm an eternal being. And God has made a way for me to be reconciled to Him and to spend a perfect eternity with Him where there will be no pain and no suffering and no more hurting. The second thing to remember is that God is with us even in this moment. We read the psalm so often, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Job when we read his life account, we see him saying, yeah, I know what's happening to me and I, I may not understand and I have been faithful. And, but with these eyes, I will see God for myself and not another. Though the skin worms devour me, though all this stuff happens, yet I will serve him. That's not because that you're looking and going, hey, he's kept this moment from happening to me. It's not because that he's looking and going, oh, because God's made my life so great. No, it's because he looks and is able to say, one day I will be with him and all of this will be over. And so I will serve him in order to experience that. And the third thing is to remember that God will cause even this hurt, even this hurt to work for our eternal good. 
I don't understand that. I really don't. I know what the scripture says. I know that the scripture says that, that he will cause all things to work together for good to those that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. I don't understand it. I don't pretend as a pastor to stand up and go, oh, you just need to, you just need to hold on to that. That'll just make everything all right. I just know that's what he says. I don't claim to understand how God in the grand scheme really takes and causes everything to work together for good. But yet I know that even in the middle of our suffering, that while he is there with us and while we can look forward with anticipation to a day when that will not occur and we won't have that hurt and he will wipe away every tear. Yet I still know that he does it. We must evaluate the grand scheme of God's plan. We must wrap our minds around eternity, his love for us, his promise to work all things to our good, and his shepherd's heart. And out of this, we can have gratefulness for these unchanging truths, even during the most horrendous but momentary pain and suffering.